So let's get on into a message for today. Uh, maybe I was a little hard yesterday, I don't know. Uh, we have to look at things very critically and very clearly and in terms of reality and where we are. We all realize that there were some things that in God was not pleased with and worldwide primarily are taking our husband-to-be for granted. Lackadaisical and in that sense Laodicean and judging in our own minds that we were okay and we were blown apart as we all well know. So now we are in a period of time where we need to correct those things that God was displeased with and come to the point that we truly are pleasing to him and that we become something that Christ would want to marry. A bride having herself prepared and granted righteousness. I spent some time showing. I think it was kind of a new way of looking at it to me, but the marriage relationship and that analogy is the strongest one in the Bible. It goes all the way back from Adam and Eve through ancient Israel and up to today and is certainly a part of the New Testament scripture culminating in the marriage of Christ. So the marriage thing is not just an analogy, it is a reality of where we're heading, headed, and this whole age and the whole history of mankind is going to culminate in a marriage to Christ himself. So the analogy falls away and the reality of a, an actual marriage occurs. So we need to take it very seriously since we're prospectively a part of that bride. And Satan, of course, is the old boyfriend, or if you will, the ex-husband, who is before the throne of God daily, accusing the brethren and trying to convince Christ that he doesn't want to marry you or me. We spent quite a little time on that, and then we got down in Matthew 5 to the rules area of the New Covenant, because the Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a summary of the New Covenant. It is extrapolated upon and expanded upon a great deal throughout the rest of the New Testament, but that's where he lays down the rules. So we're going back there today, but before doing so, I want to bring in another scripture to the analogy to make it perhaps more real in our minds, and that is in Ephesians 5. He says in verse 6 of Ephesians 5, Let no man deceive you with vain words. Don't let them pat you on the back. Don't let them give you a religion that might seem good to you, or that is easy, or in that sense is vanity and won't do you any good. We are told in quite a few places to cry aloud, to spare not, to tell my people their sins. Now, I know we hear a lot of that here, and I know that it is difficult, but on the other hand, we need to understand that God, in blowing a church that he loved apart, was chasing us, chastening us very soundly. And after that chastening, and the chastening is still going on, the church is still dividing, it is still splintering, and it will not stop splintering until not one stone is left upon another. 
So the trend that is going on will continue to the spiritual temple until God begins to regather those who have learned from the chastening, who have changed their attitudes, have corrected the wrongs, and are now fully alert and aware. And we have a great deal of instruction here in Ephesians 5 about that. So if Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are directed at the bride and the marriage relationship, I want to include what we have here in Ephesians 5 as just another scripture to go along with and underline what we are reading there and seeing. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. So God does not put any stock in religion or the church of God if we do not live up to what God expects of us. And we'll see what that is from another standpoint here in a little while. Be not therefore partakers with them. I quoted Revelation 18.4 yesterday. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her plagues and her sins. And there are many other admonitions in the prophecies about getting away from Babylon, having no fellowship with the world, but our fellowship with his God, is with God, as John says in 1 John, and many other places. And here is yet another. Be not, therefore, partakers with them, for you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the eternal. Now we saw yesterday in Matthew 5, that we're here to be a candle, a light to the world. We're not to hide it under a bushel. We're to let it shine forth. We're not to go hide, as sometimes in worldwide 30 or 40 years ago we used to tend to do, for fear of persecution. (laughs) Uh, We we didn't admit we were a church. We said, "I'm I'm a representative of Ambassador College. And that sounded, I guess, more urbane and, and less religious. Perhaps it had its place in a way, and yet that was not the right approach. Oh, almost all the New Testament, if you really think about it, is based on Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You will find the same expressions put in a little different way, in a different context, all through the New Testament, the writings of the the apostles who heard that first instruction about what the terms of the new covenant are. They explained it, they applied it to the churches wherever they were, and that's why we can open to Ephesians 5 and read essentially the same thing that we were reading yesterday in Matthew 5. Now you are a light in the eternal, walk as children of light. Men love darkness because their deeds are evil. So we are supposed to walk as children of light. You know, when you're in the light, you don't stumble much. You stumble in darkness. You can't see very well and don't know where to put your feet. But when you have the light, you know where and how to walk. You can see what you're doing. I don't think there's anything worse than a church that doesn't know what it's doing. As I recounted yesterday, one of the major churches, uh, splinters of the Church of God, recently went to the world to have the world define what their image should be. 
doesn't God's word reflect our image and how we should be? Why do we go to the world for that? Why not go to God to see how we should act, how we should set an example, what our conduct should be, what our thoughts should be, and then our image will be that. It's that simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. Just do what God says, and you'll have the right image, and you won't be liked for it. Know that, and he said that in Matthew 5. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So if we have God's Spirit, and it produces fruit in us, what will be seen is goodness and righteousness and the truth. And it is the truth that sets us free from sin, from bad conscience, from guilt. If we're following the truth, we don't have to deal with those issues. It's when we screw up and walk in the flesh rather than the spirit that we have emotional problems and difficulties in our lives because we know we're not doing what we ought to be doing. And therefore, it creates problems for us. So the truth followed will set us free from those negative emotions. Proving what is acceptable to the eternal. Now, the way we were in worldwide today is obviously unacceptable to God. And I have remonstrated many times that we have to do better than we were doing in worldwide to please God. To do that which is acceptable to him. It is only acceptable that he have a bride to marry who is excited, who is attentive, who is serving, giving, loving, always ready, of a ready mind, to do everything she can to help and please her husband. That's why we were created. We are here to administer to and help him rule over his family in the millennium and the kingdom of God. And he doesn't want us half asleep, self-satisfied, self-centered, and doing our thing rather than being in a mode of seeking hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That we were not doing in worldwide anymore. We took it for granted. We went through the motions. That was utterly unacceptable to God. So if we put pressure on ourselves here, it is with good reason. It is because we literally must change in order to please the bridegroom and have him select us, choose us, to be at that wedding supper. You remember the story. There were those who came and wanted to be at the wedding supper, but they did not have the proper garments. And we said, saw yesterday in Revelation 19 that the garments of the bride are holiness and righteousness that have been granted to her through forgiveness, through growth, through overcoming. So that's what he's after in a bride. 
and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Reprove them not necessarily with words, but we reprove them with our lives. We set a good example of following God's ways, and that is reproof, because they do not follow God's ways. But here again, he says, don't have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. The whole world lies in darkness. Satan has deceived the whole world. And he says we are not to have fellowship with this world. We are to set an example for the world instead. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. And as I said yesterday, we often watch sinful things on whatever screen is our choice that are despicable and sinful, and yet we allow it as entertainment. Here's just another scripture which says that is not the way to go. We have to make changes. All things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever does make manifest is light. So we manifest ourselves as candidates to be the bride of Christ himself by walking in the light and not thinking, acting, looking like the world around us or consorting with them. Wherefore he says, Awake, you that sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Now, is this something realistic today, or is it just a problem with the Ephesian church? Revelation 2 and 3 look forward beyond that. The Apostle John had the message given to him from Christ, and the message to the seven churches, and I think all those attitudes of all seven, the good and the bad, are among the splintered groups of the church today. And it says that there will be even one who calls itself living. You have a name that you are living but you are dead. Now that's scary. If you think you are spiritually alive, and yet God's assessment is you're spiritually dead. So our own assessment of ourselves cannot be trusted. We have to see ourselves in the light of this word. And whatever it says, we measure ourselves against that. Then we know if we are making progress or not. Because we deceive ourselves so very easily. How many who were scattered for Laodiceanism, including you and me, assessed of themselves that they were Laodicean before it happened? Very, very few. It was always someone else who was self-righteous and thought they had it all not you and me. And yet by our very works and actions and the way we lived and our last lackadaisical approach, we were not really scratching gravel daily to try to live up to the standard of Christ himself. He whom we are to marry and we're going to be a lesser being than him? Why would he want a wife that wasn't like him? And yet even after the scattering hit full force, we still have groups blaming someone else for the problem. 
either to Koch's or other people, another group, or whatever, and still failing to admit why they were scattered. I'll tell you why I was part of the scattering. It's because I deserved it, thank you. I wasn't what I should be. And now, there has to be a great deal of repentance and change and be on fire and have oil in the lamp and all of those analogies that Christ uses. Because he will not tolerate a ho-hum bride. That's all there is to it. Awake, you that sleep. What about the ten virgins? They all slumbered and slept. The whole church was asleep. Now, is anybody going to change that unless they take personal responsibility for it? As long as you can blame it on that group or that person, you have no personal responsibility, no culpability, and no reason to change. But if you take it personal and say, that chastening is for me, then you're motivated to do something about it, which is where we must be. These are hard words because we don't like to change. We like status quo. We don't want anyone to rock the boat. We want to continue on as we have been. And most of those who came out of Worldwide are just trying to recreate it and redo what was there that was unacceptable to God in the first place. Now how is anyone going to improve on what was there if all they're trying to do is be what we were. Where is room for growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord? So if I was a bit discouraging and hard yesterday, should I apologize or just let you know I'm going to be the same way? <laughs> That's what I'm called to do, brethren. I cannot allow you and me to fall short. I cannot let us go at the switch, asleep at the switch again. We must stay awake or wake up if we're not yet awake or if we're still half asleep. Doesn't it say that same thing in Isaiah 51? It says it three times. Awake! Awake! And then it even says the third time, for God to awake to our plight, our trouble, our need, and to get up and to go to work, as Zechariah 2 does as well. It's time for you to arise, O Lord, and do your work. He's sitting back, giving us opportunity, giving us space to repent, but at some point, he is going to take hold. And it's going to be a wild ride if we're not ready for it. So Paul is echoing Isaiah here. Arise from the spiritually dead is the implication here. And Christ shall give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. A drunken fool has trouble putting his feet in the right place 
and he often falls on his nose. We are to walk soberly as children of light, watching where we put our feet so that we don't stumble and fall. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. And that has never been truer than it is today. Maybe in the days of Noah it was as bad as today, but I think we're approaching the point in our societies around the world, including the good old USA, where every thought is evil continually. If not outright evil in terms of murder or rape or thievery or whatever, certainly self-centeredness and ego and pride, which are also sin, is almost every thought of our whole people. The true meekness and humility of God is very rare in this so-called Christian nation or this so-called Christian church. The days are evil. We are to redeem the time. Instead of watching sin, we should be reading this which would cleanse us from sin. Verse 17, Wherefore be you not unwise? Let's don't be blithering fools. Let's be wise. But understanding what the will of the eternal is. How many people have truly sat down carefully considered the scriptures since worldwide went into the tailspin and really sought the will of God, redrawing the perimeters, the parameters, and finding out why these things happen. Don't we understand that the church is the apple of God's eye? He is very, very concerned about it. It contains those who would be the bride of his son. He counts the hair on our head. And the demise and the blowing apart of Worldwide Church of God was done at God's behest. He did it on purpose because he could not stand what we were. How many have thought that through carefully and said, well, if God was unpleased, then what would he be pleased with? What changes need to be made? I don't think that most of the church, and I could be wrong, but I don't think a majority of the church by any means has looked that introspectively at what the church was, what it has become, and what they were, and what we have all become. It has been pretty much business as usual. Well, that fell apart, but God must want us to go ahead and preach the gospel and write plain truths and build another auditorium or whatever direction it took to try to recreate what was. I want us here to create what was not. Recreating what was will gain us no gold stars. We need to create something far better than what was. 
do something that was not. Now you might say, that's a pretty strong pronouncement. I'm just quoting, and you know it, all the things that this book says about what would happen to the church and physical Israel in the end time. First to the church, then to the nation. That's the way the prophecies are written. We have a great deal of work to do to create a better temple, as Haggai says, than that which was before us. Now you might say it's pretty harsh to judge the church that way. All right, let's don't. Let's just boil it down to you and me. Can you really truly say that you as an individual 20, 30 years ago in Worldwide Church of God were really the kind of bride that Christ would want to say, man, I want that one. That's one of the ones I want in my 144,000. I have to look back and say, he was saying, do I really want that one? Now maybe you're different. But what is a group? It is a collection of individuals. We must take individual responsibility in order for the group itself to then have taken responsibility. All members of the body must pull together to pull the body out of the mire in which it has fallen. So this is a team effort as well as an individual effort. Understand what the will of the eternal is. If you're spewed out, then the will of the eternal obviously would be repent and do differently than what you were doing, right? Verse 18, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Not wrong to drink wine and we're at the feast where strong drink is uh, encouraged by Scripture. And yet on the other hand, not in excess... You know, you can get filled with wine or strong drink, and then you can't walk circumspectly. But you can be filled with the Spirit of God and know exactly what you're doing and where you're going, because the light is plain. Now, what does this have to do with meat in due season and the Feast of Tabernacles? Isn't the whole world going to have to repent of the way they were and change and live an entirely different life in the millennium? You bet they are. If they don't come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, they'll have no rain. They are going to be put under incredible pressure to live God's way. We have to put ourselves under incredible pressure today to live God's way. Otherwise, we'll go into the tribulation and receive no spiritual rain, and we will probably die there. Praying that we would be accounted worthy is one thing. Working at becoming worthy is quite yet another thing. We want to be there to help the world repent and change and grow and learn to live peaceably and walking in the light of God's way. Therefore, the greatest teacher is example. So it is incumbent upon you and me to thoroughly change 
speech, our approach, our attitude, our spirit of love and service, of giving, of getting rid of the negative thinking and the backbiting and the gossip and the putting down and the negativity and to think on those things that are pure and true and right and good and wholesome. So this is very much germane to the world uh, to the world tomorrow or the millennium. We are going through today what the world is going to have to go through shortly. We need to learn how to do it and then we can teach it. It is terrible to be put in a teaching position when you have no idea what it is you're trying to get across. If you've lived it, you've known it, you've changed it, you've overcome, then you know how. And you can show them how. If it's all theory, you still don't know how. Verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the eternal. That's why we sing in the church service. Sing songs to God with thanksgiving. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Emmanuel. Then he gets into an area that is very important to us in terms of this series of sermons that we're having. Verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, in the past, Ephesians 5 and this section of it has been used to browbeat the women about how they ought to be subject to their husbands. There's a lot more to this chapter than that. But that's what was picked on because the church had learned that the husband was to be the head of the wife. And the husband did not have the love, the compassion, the knowledge, the character to be the head. And therefore, he took up the only thing he knew of that might cause her to be in submission to him, and that was a club. And said, I am the head now and I will beat you down unless you submit to me. Now, that was the entirely wrong approach. The church failed there by only giving partial knowledge. You're the head, here's your club, and stopped there. That's unfortunate, because then we had martyred myrtles and women who were beat down just because the husband was bigger and because the Bible said, I'm in charge here, and you do what I say, woman or else. That was not pleasant for the ladies, and it was not good for the men. So it starts this passage out by saying, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That means that men and women submit to each other, and he's talking here first of all to the church, and then he narrows it down to the marriage relationship specifically and gives instruction to both sides, if you will. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the eternal. You don't have to submit to other men necessarily any more than brothers and sisters are supposed to submit to each other in righteousness. 
but you submit to your own husband and treat him as if he were in the position of God, because that is what marriage is all about, as we shall see shortly. The marriage of Christ to the church, or to his bride. And he wants a bride who is willing and serving and submits to him and follows through with his desires, his wishes, his needs, his direction, his focus in life to help him do the job as the leader overall in the family. She is also a leader in the family, but she is there to aid and abet and strengthen and help her husband. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. The husband is there to be sure the family is safe, or saved, if you will. We're not talking necessarily just spiritually here being saved, but to save the family from trouble, from upheaval, from financial difficulty, from all the troubles that beset a family. He is there to help save the family from that, as Christ is here to help save the church from that. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, we're here to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, to walk as he walked, to do as he did, faithfully, daily, momentarily. Even so, let the wives be... Uh, to their husbands in everything. So he is there for overall direction in all areas and facets of life. Now, the club approach doesn't get it. In order to accomplish the things that we just read, he has to have knowledge, he has to have wisdom, he has to have energy, he has to have patience and love, Mercy, he has to have kindness, gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit of God, in order to lead, not drive, his wife. Christ is there not to browbeat us daily. He does chasten us at times. But at the same time, he set the example for us. Now, I'm here to set the example for you, and I have to apologize that I often make mistakes. I have my own foibles, sins, and problems, and I'm not as good an example as I ought to be. So we have to work with flaws. I have them, you have them. And yet, we have to grow and overcome. Thankfully, I can point to Christ as the perfect example when I cannot live up to it myself, even though I try and fall miserably short so often. And that is where you learn to grow in patience and mercy and faith in God, because he sends less than perfect people, and that is the program he set up. Just as... All of you wives have an imperfect husband. Hello. Yes, you do. You all know it. You might not admit it to somebody else, but you know it. But still in all, you swallow your pride, your own vanity, and your own self-direction, and you try to help him 
accomplish the goals and purposes of the family as he focuses. And you're dealing with an imperfect person. It is not easy. And he needs to understand that, that the kindness and love and mercy and gentleness needs to be there because he is indeed imperfect. And it is difficult for you ladies to do what Paul is saying needs to be done here. We're all candidates to be the bride of Christ, whatever part of the body we are. The body all has to work together, and if one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. We sympathize, empathize with one another to help each other be strong and to fulfill our part of the body, whatever it might be. And we're all far from perfect. All right, then the instruction turns to the husbands. I've already actually said some of these things. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. There is nothing he held back from the church, from the prospective bride that he is coming back to marry. He gave of his time, he gave of his energy, his love, his patience. He even gave his actual life for you and me. The ultimate sacrifice, willing to do whatever was necessary to be sure his bride was taken care of, had everything she needed, even coming to his death for her sins, that she might be justified, sanctified, and ultimately glorified. What willingness he had to sacrifice for his wife. That is what God expects of you and me, husbands. Love your wives the same way that he might sanctify or set aside and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now he gave us the Holy Spirit to comfort us while he was on his long journey as the bridegroom before his return. We needed that gift to help us, but he also gave us this word. He knows that we are not what we ought to be. So he gave us this word to wash us and to cleanse us You've got to take the bath. That means we need to be immersed in this word. Because this is what cleanses our minds, our emotions, and our thoughts. If you're having muddy, stinking thinking, or whatever, this is where you clean your thinking up. Now, how often do you need it? Once a month? That ought to clean you up, shouldn't it? Man, I need it every day. I need it every day because I have stinking thoughts every day. I know you find that hard to believe, <clears throat> but I'm afraid it is all too manifest. That's what this is, is a tool. It's like a bar of soap in a shower, if you will. Clean us up. Now here's his purpose in giving us his work that he might present it to himself a glorious church. He doesn't want uh, 
kind of a wife, a half-hearted wife. He wants a glorious wife. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now this word spot is used in James 1.25, I think it is. Let me turn back there and see. Where he talks about pure religion and undefiled in verse 27 of James 1. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The world is full of sin, and here spots are declared sin. He wants us to be arrayed in pure white righteousness and holiness, the garments of righteousness, unspotted from the world, pure white. Sin spots our garments. It removes the beauty of righteousness. And we were a bunch of Dalmatians. But we have to wash the spots off. Did you ever try to wash, wash the spots off of dog? <laughs> they don't come off very easy, do they? Our spots don't come off very easy. Therefore, we need continual washing in the Word. There's your reason for Bible study. Not because it appears righteous to read your Bible 30 minutes a day, but if you're truly hungering and thirsting after righteousness, you'll spend your time reading this so that you might become holy and righteous rather than spending that time with the entertainment of the world which is full of sin of every kind and spots your thinking and works on your attitudes and your emotions. We still do not have it right in our heads if we desire the entertainment of television and internet and whatever else might be out there, movies, you name it. If we have more desire to imbibe of those things than to have our head in this book, we still don't have it right because we are partaking of the spots in the world, instead of spending our time washing the spots off by cleansing our minds in this word. Now let's be honest here. How does our time with the entertainment that is put out there, how much time do we spend in here as opposed to to there. How often is our television on as compared to our Bible being open and being read? You can open it and lay it on the dresser and make a liar out of me in a hurry. It's open all the time. But just what is it we are hungering and thirsting for? <clears throat> Excuse me. Relaxation and entertainment or righteousness? You do the math. You examine your life. What is your emphasis? What is your focus? 
We're here to prepare ourselves as a bride for Christ. And that is a high calling, a very high calling. Do we, are we willing to go through what princes and princesses are in royal families on this earth? Have you ever read what those little kids go through, the routine they have to go through to learn all the manners, to learn all the protocols, to learn everything about government, about ruling, about monarchies and how they comport themselves in every situation they might face. They spend almost their entire lives with mentors, instructors, and teachers, hour after hour, day after day, being bombarded with how they ought to act as little princesses and princes. And then they grow up to be jerks in some cases. But they have to put that time in. Now we are here to become kings and priests in the millennium and the bride of Christ himself. How much time are we willing to put into that endeavor? And I'm afraid the royalties of Europe and other places put us to shame by the sacrifice that they go through in order to learn to be just a physical monarch. And we're given opportunity to rule the entire world. Now let's not be discouraged and say, man, I'll never make it, because it seems insurmountable at times, I understand. But if you're called to be a king and a priest and marry God himself, then there needs to be vision and understanding and a grasp of what it takes to be there. And this book is what imparts that vision. It's what, as you read scripture after scripture, I picked Ephesians 5, I could have gone a thousand places and had the same story. Because it's here to give us instruction, correction, guidance, and righteousness. And he wants us to become without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but be holy and without blemish. I know that's formidable. Now, in this series, I started just before trumpets, and I've not yet gotten to the meaning of trumpets. I've not yet gotten to the true meaning of atonement, and now we're in the Feast of Tabernacles. But at the same time, I feel that we need to lay this much background so that we better understand the true types of those days. So we're in that period from the time the church began in Pentecost and Christ gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit to keep us while he was away on a journey building a mansion in heaven and preparing a place for us. We're in that period of time when he has gone on a long journey and we are here preparing ourselves to become the bride of Christ. We're engaged now. We're preparing for the marriage. So what we are going through is the most important part of the reality of now and what we need to be doing. 
Now when we get to the Feast of Trumpets by and by before this feast is over, we're going to see that there is hope. So let's go through the hard part first of getting a spotted, wrinkled old broad ready <laughs> and becoming true virgins in Christ, clean and white. It is not an easy task. And we, but we must emphasize it. But he's going to give us some hope when we get to Feast of Trumpets. So maybe I should drop the... Well, I want to give you a little encouragement for a moment before I start hitting us again. Because there is hope. Do not be discouraged. Yes, we're ineffective. Yes, we're spotted. Yes, we have character flaws. Yes, we are the weak in the base of the world, not destined to be stay that way, but to become glorious and unspotted and unwrinkled. And there is a process whereby we can remove some of that now and have an awful lot of it removed later. So we'll get to that. So don't be too discouraged and jump up and walk out uh, or give up. <clears throat> there is work to be done. You've all been, a lot of you, most of you, through marriage at one time and getting ready for a wedding. Wasn't there a time there when you said, man, I wish we'd have kept this simple? All the foo-for-raw and the stuff you go through and invitations and cakes and dresses and decorations and on and on and on it goes. You think, man, I'll be glad when this thing's over. And so will everybody else. And I'll be glad when this thing is over and I'm married to Christ. I hope and pray that I can be there. Because this preparation stuff gets pretty hard and tedious and difficult and almost hopeless at times. God understands that. That's why we have our nose in this book. But even as Christ loved the church, verse 28, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. We are instructed to love ourselves. And we're to treat our wife the same way we treat ourselves. I do not swing a hammer and smash my thumb on purpose. I like my thumb. I love my thumb. I don't like to hit it with a hammer. But sometimes I lose it and miss it and do. And as careful as I am with that thumb, I need to be as careful with my wife. And then sometimes I miss and hit her too. Not physically, no, 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 let's don't get this started wrong. But emotionally, verbally, we all make those mistakes, don't we? Are we as careful with each other as we are with ourselves? Are we as careful with each other's feelings here as brothers and sisters as we are with our own feelings? We don't like our feelings hurt, do we? Oh, no. Not mine. I don't want my feelings hurt. But I'm often willing to hurt somebody else's. Because they're not mine. They're theirs. If we were as careful about each other's feelings as part of the bride, sister, wives, as were our own, there would be a lot less offense. Of course, people say, well, you shouldn't offend me. Well, that's right. 
But then on the other hand, there are just as many scriptures that say don't be offended. It's a two-sided coin. And if we have the true love of God, absolutely nothing will offend us. Do you have all the love of God you need, or do you still get offended? We give and take offense like daily baths, don't we? For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, even as the eternal, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. See, he's intending to marry us. Isn't that the way it was with Adam and Eve? He took of Adam's rib, his bones, and made a wife for him, from him, with him. And he's saying right here that we are of his flesh and bones. He intends to marry us, and marriage should be closer than blood relatives. Leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife. Put her ahead of your blood relatives. A lot of people don't do that, and it causes troubles in marriage. Well, it says it down here. Let's keep reading. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Now, did not Christ tell the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, and you know not whom you worship? To whom you obey, that is your father, Christ said, right? I think it is not out of line to put that analogy right here. We leave our father and mother Gaia, the earth out here, the culture of people and Satan, and if we obey Satan and follow his ways, then he is our father. If we obey God and follow his ways, he is our father. Christ made that very clear. You think you're righteous, Pharisees, but you are of your father, the devil. Now, they were human beings created in the image of God. They were God's children physically by creation. But by conduct, by attitude, by life, they were of their father, the devil. In other words, they rejected their true father and adopted a false father. And the mother, the same. Satan then becomes the father of this earth, and the culture and society of Satan become the mother of this earth. That's what this analogy is doing. Because physically we leave our father and our mother and cleave to our mate. Spiritually we leave our false father and mother and we turn to our true father and the true church, the true mother, not a false mother. Let's see if that holds true. Verse 32. This is a great mystery, hard to grasp, hard to understand, mysterious. Looking at human marriage, how? 
but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Physical marriage was created by God to show us, to teach us, the right kind of relationship that we should have between Christ and the church. That's what marriage is for. Now, even as we individually are spotted by the sin of the world and ourselves, so our marriages are imperfect as well. So this whole instruction here is that we conduct our marriages in such a way that they begin more and more to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. That is the purpose of marriage. That's why we're married. Now, humanly, we might look at it and say, well, I want to get married because I don't want to live alone. I, don't want, to get, I want to get married because I don't want to live without. I want to get married because I want to have children. On and on it might go from a, physically, a purely physical standpoint. But there's something bigger there. And if we're looking at only the physical and this, the spiritual analogy that marriage is, then we're missing the whole point. And we might live more or less physically happy in a marriage. But if we don't get the message that's there, then what good does it do us eternally? Do we daily look upon our marriage and think about it and react in it as Christ reacts to the church and as the church should react to him? That's what this is all about. That's what boot camp is. It's preparation for something bigger when the bullets are live. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she highly respect her husband. It's a two-way street. I bet you thought I was going to get back into Matthew 5 and finish that today, didn't you? You know me better than that. But let's go back there and cover some more. For some of you who did not hear this, briefly, uh, I made an outline of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this first message Christ gave to his disciples, of whom he would use to build the church. So this is the marriage covenant, the new covenant, with better promises and with stricter rules than that which was in the Old Testament. And he begins it, verses 3 through 9, by showing what kind of attitude we should all have to enter into this marriage agreement with Christ. Then he shows that that will bring persecution in the next few verses. And then he says we need to be the salt and the light, the flavor and the example to the world. That's what he is setting us aside to be. We have to live up to that. Then he gives the rules of the marriage, starting in verse 17, showing that the law is still very much in effect. One jot or one tittle will not be done away until heaven and earth pass, which has not happened and actually is not. The current look of the earth 
The current pollution that we have done to it is going to be changed and burned. And we won't get into that theology, but the earth is not going to burn up as we believed in worldwide. It's going to be redone. We're going to inherit the earth. So he goes on and talks about even the very least of the commandments of God are not done away. Nothing has changed. The administration has. And then he begins to explain the administration that now is compared to the administration in the Old Testament. It isn't that anything's done away with. It's just administered differently. We don't have animal sacrifices. It is administered through Christ and his overall sacrifice that covers them all. So sacrifices are not done away. Christ's sacrifice remains as a daily sacrifice for you and me. And we, in Romans 12:1, are told to present our bodies as a living sacrifice day by day, even as he, his sacrifice is there for us. So the husband and the bride-to-be both sacrifice themselves daily for each other. That's the new administration. So sacrifice is still very much alive and abounding as we sacrifice our bodies and present them every day. Our attitudes, our minds, our readiness of mind. And we have to have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees by far, who were called sons of snakes, generation of vipers, rotting carcasses inside mausoleums, if you will, whited sepulchers, stinky on the inside and painted white on the outside. And we are a menage of manure on the inside, and we try to present a beautiful exterior. But what's inside is what really counts. And that's what has to be cleaned. So then he talks about anger and how we cannot be angry and how it is raised from the level of just don't kill anybody to don't be angry with anyone, with or without cause. Without cause isn't in the Greek. We should not be angry. And if we are, through righteous anger, at times occasionally angry, we are not to let the sun go down on that wrath. We are not allowed, as a prospective bride of Christ, to maintain our anger beyond sundown on any given day. You are not righteously allowed to carry a grudge 24 hours. If you're going to get angry, get angry right after sunset. You can nurse it for nearly 24 hours. And you've got to be over it in that period of time. That is holiness. That is righteousness. Remember that scripture in Lamentations that says God gives us a new day every day? Like the sun comes up on a clean slate. That is what our husband gives us. I think it's Lamentations 2, I'm not sure. That's what he gives us. 
Now he sets the example that we should follow in his steps. So we then have to give each other a clean page every day. Now somebody said you gave me a lot to work on yesterday. Here's a little more. Because as human beings, we carry grudges for days, weeks, months, years, decades, lifetimes, do we not? Get over it. Repent before the day is done. It is not fair to continually bring up someone's mistakes of the past. It is the glory of God to cover sin, but it is the pleasure of man to recount it and to use it against one another. Give each other a new day every day. Maybe it's worth turning back to Lamentations quickly. If I can even find it anymore. Chapter 3, I'm sorry. This is a, lamb, a lament about Israel's sins, but it is also a prophecy and a lament of the church's sins. I don't have time to go into all that, but it's true. He says, verse 18, My strength and my hope is perished from the eternal. I was talking about that a few minutes ago. It seems almost impossible. Too much hill to climb to us at times. Remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, the problems I have, the attitudes I have, the fight I have every day to do those things which I should and not do those things which I shouldn't, as Paul said. My soul has them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The eternal is my portion, says my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The eternal is good to them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the eternal. We have his mercies new every morning. You need some hope there, some right there. We fall far short, but he is willing to give us every morning a new start on a new day, and we need to be that way with each other. So anger is a problem. We talked about that and how we need to solve those things as much as is possible before we even bring our gift of praise and righteousness and thanks to God. Then we covered adultery and how we need to individually follow through on this as well as institutionally and not go the way of this world, as worldwide was headed and as much of the church is going now, just going back into the world like a swine to her mud or a dog to his vomit. 
And once they go there, it's almost impossible to redeem them from it. Once you have tasted righteousness, to go back to the ways of this world is like Esau. He repented carefully and with tears, but couldn't get the job done, or tried to repent carefully and with tears. We've got to divorce ourselves from Satan and the world. Divorce is final. You can't be half in a marriage to the world and half in a marriage to Christ. He requires entire, total faithfulness in a bride. So if we're still dallying with our old boyfriend in the world, we better quit it. No man can serve two masters. And he won't have the one master unless he serves him completely and entirely and wholeheartedly. He is after our hearts is what he's after. Then it talks about swearing. Let's see if here in a few minutes we can get through a little more of this. We got down to verse 38. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You do this to me and I'm going to do that to you. We're going to make this thing equal. You hurt my feelings, I'm going to hurt you. You yell at me, I'm going to yell right back. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, now here's a change in that rule, that law, that dictum of the Old Testament. Here's a change in the administration and how we approach someone who hurts our tooth or our eye or whatever part of our body they mash. I say to you that you resist not evil. You don't hit them back. You don't slam them the way they slammed you. You don't talk behind their back or put them down or be negative the way they were to you. It's not tit for tat. This for that. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Resist not evil. Now if someone says something evil about you or to you, what is your immediate carnal human reaction. Fight back. Resist that. Defend yourself. You're not going to hit me like that. That is our automatic carnal reaction. So Christ said, no, they hit you over the head, you don't get a bat and hit them over the head. If they talk bad of you, you don't defend yourself. You don't necessarily try to st straighten them out. You do not resist evil. What does that mean? Does it mean what it says or not? It is so automatic for us to defend ourselves or our family or our mate or whoever it is. Now read Isaiah 52 sometime. Christ was dumb like a sheep. He answered not. He had all kinds of accusations thrown at him, and none of them were correct. It was all scurrilous. It was all false rumor and false accusation. 
And he answered not a word. He did not defend himself. What does James say? If we suffer for something we did, there is no acceptance of that. That just ought to be expected. And yet we'll try to cover and lie to cover our behind even if we did it as human beings. We'll try to defray it or defuse it or something so that we don't feel bad or guilty or look bad in the eyes of others. Even if we did it, we'll try to cover it. Now, if we're falsely accused and didn't do it, boy, do we try to cover it then. This is big time now. I didn't do that. Like I said the other day, you may have all kinds of things to accuse me of, but I know more than you do. I'm worse than you think I am. So if you come ready to accuse, maybe you better get all the ammo, not just one or two shots. But the point is, we're not here to defend ourselves. We're to be like Christ was. And I'll take it a step further. They were false accusations against him personally. But you know what? He had done everything they accused him of through you and me. He was not sinless hanging on that stake. He had every sin that you and I from Adam and Eve have committed, including the ones we're still committing, on his back. But he didn't say, hey, wait a minute, it's their fault. They did it. He just took it. How Christ-like are we? How much can we take it? Now this is the marriage covenant of the Lamb. Resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Instead of defenders of self, we need to become cheek-turners. Now, how righteous really are we? We thought in Worldwide we were only one plane ticket away from Petra. We thought we were okay. But measured in the light of this standard, we have some growing to do. Why can't we go to a brother and ask for help or restitution or that they might correct something or whatever? Because we ourselves have too much pride, vanity, and ego, and our approach generally offends them. And we ourselves, if someone comes to us, have not learned to resist evil and turn the other cheek, but we want to defend ourselves and make ourselves look good. We don't want to necessarily be good, we just want to look good. 
That's the world. That's human nature. And if any man will sue you at the law and take away your coat, give him your cloak also. Well, as you're suing me for this, well, here, have this too. You don't even have to go to court on that basis. You settle out of court, don't you? Whosoever shall compel you to go a mile, go too. Double it. We know about the Roman soldiers, and you had to give your clothes to them and so on. But it's a principle here, spiritually speaking. Be willing to go the extra mile. Be willing to give more than they're even asking for. Give me this. You owe it to me. Okay, how about a hug with it? Maybe they're not ready for that at that point. Give them more than they're asking for. That's the Christ-like way. That is the standard of the new covenant being laid out before us. Give to him that asks uh, ask you, and for him that would borrow of you, turn you not away. You've heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's natural and human, isn't it? Let me wind this up here. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do we have people here we don't get along well as well with as maybe others? Maybe we need to go way above and beyond and be sure we love those that we think might have something against us or that rub us the wrong way or whatever. Make sure that we love them, even if they're an enemy, not just a brother that we're kind of upset with or can't get along with or whatever. All parts of the body have to learn to live and work in harmony. Read 1 Corinthians 12. In harmony, not in juxtaposition or opposed opposition to one another. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that can't stand your living guts, to put it in modern vernacular. Is this easy? Whoever said Christianity would be easy? This is tough stuff. I'm trying to dramatize it a little bit and put it in clear terms of what he's actually saying, not just read it as something flowery and that's wafting along that's pretty good. This is the bare knuckles, down-to-earth, everyday way of thinking and living and reacting. It's what is expected of us. Now, do we have a ways to go to get rid of the spots and the blemishes and the wrinkles and to be the bride of the everlasting God? Or do we have some work to do? Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Go home. Get on your knees. And in sincerity and honesty, pray for your brother and sister. Sincerely, not self-righteously. And judgmentally and critically and negatively. 
There is no room for negative. There's no room for put-down. There is just no room for that. Now, we can kid each other in a light-hearted, loving way, and we can give each other all kinds of grief, and I don't think God has a problem with that as long as it's good-spirited and not mean-spirited. Like brothers and sisters, we kid each other. But be sure that there's not a mean spirit and a negative spirit behind it. Because in it is deleterious. It's negative. It's hurtful. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Not your Father the devil, but your Father in heaven, your real Father. For he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. Sun came up this morning. Didn't matter whether you were evil or good, the sun came up, didn't it? He causes it to rain on the just and on the unjust. So whether we got rain or not and somebody else didn't doesn't prove one way or another whether we're righteous or not because God is willing to bless his enemies, those who hate him, those who have abdicated or, or taken away him as the father and adopted a different father and mother. He loves us all as human beings, and he wants all men everywhere to repent, and they will in their own order, except for a few, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But he is a success, and he will be the true father to most of the population of the earth by the end of the last great day. Because he is a successful father, not a failure. And he has a plan, and it's going to work. For if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? Even the publicans do that. And the publicans, he said, were like snakes along with the Pharisees. And if you salute your brother only, those that you like, those you're around, I'll give you a hug and I'll talk to you, but I ain't getting along too well. No, we've got to show our love to everyone equally. Sure, you have some that you enjoy the company of more than others. Personalities may be alike, backgrounds, whatever. You can spend more time with them, just like John and Christ had a special relationship. That was his best friend among the apostles. But he didn't spend all his time with John and leave the rest out, did he? There was no clique there. He gave them all his time. He just gave a little more feeling and emotion to John because they had similar personalities, apparently, and therefore related to each other perhaps a little better. If you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others do not even the publicans? Be you therefore mature, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is mature. Not showing favoritism here and lack of it there but loving all, as Christ loves all of us and gives us a new son every morning. Good place to stop. I'm out of time and over. So see you tomorrow at 2 in Zion.